Thank you, Andrew. I am honored to be with you. I think that's the right word. Honored? Right. Got it? Not glory. Right. Yeah, okay. Be with you today. And I, I appreciate Brother uh, Everett's uh, lesson. We had uh, Everett Hufford uh, at Heritage just a few months ago to give some talks. And uh, remember, he had, he had sent his uh, sort of biography for the advertisement of it. It said he had, he had attended an Arab high school. And uh, some of our people didn't quite understand what that meant. They put, he had attended Arab High School. <laughs> Arab, Alabama. <laughs> so, I don't know if you caught that. But that, that yeah. We maybe didn't show that to you on purpose. I uh, have, in the past few weeks, picked up running a little bit since, since about January 2nd. Uh, I don't run ultra marathons. I run about two or three miles a day sometimes. Sometimes I run that. Uh, Saturday I ran a um, few miles and I came in and I was all hot and sweaty. My six-year-old son said, Daddy, why do you run? And I said, well, to get healthy. He said, you don't look healthy. <laughs> well, I've got the long view. You know, I've got the long view that uh, if I keep doing it, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll uh, be a little more active when those uh, golden years come. Uh, hopefully be a little more healthy than I would have been. When we read the Bible, I think we see God has the long view. You know, it's not always about just right now. Uh, God is patient. God is long-suffering. You know, God is love, and love is patient. And God is patient, and so uh, he's got the long view. And... We, uh, as we read the New Testament, we're really impressed and we talk and we preach about how God uh, is really concerned with all people. God sent his son for the world because God loved the world. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he has appointed us as people with a mission to take that to all people, preach the gospel to all creation baptize people, and make disciples of all nations. And we see that, that God has that concern. And we haven't traditionally, I'll say, and maybe I'm you know, uh, taking out uh, a narrow view and attributing it to uh, a wider audience, but I'll say in my experience, I haven't heard this so much, uh, that, that that emphasis is also there in the Old Testament. It's not as prominent in the Old Testament. But it is there. This talk that I'm supposed to be given is, is Kingdom and Commandments, and it's really taken from Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. You know, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19, Kingdom of Priests, Holy Nation. And so I'm going to be sort of running around the Bible a little bit, but that's where the thoughts originate. Okay, so it's tied to that. This is about Exodus, but it's sort of taken that idea and it blowing it up a little bit. I'm not even going to tell you what I'm reading. All right? You'll figure it out. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. 
And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Now, could have been a trick because that is actually in the Bible twice. I wasn't reading Micah 4, I was reading Isaiah 2. Uh, the vision of God is that all nations, right? Many nations, uh, uh, many peoples in, in verse 3. If you're reading KJV, I think it says many people. It is plural in Hebrew, and I know people is sort of plural in English as well, but it, okay, we're getting a little confused. It, it should be many peoples, all right? It's more than one nation, it's many peoples, many nations, all right, are going to come. More, more than, so we're not, we're not just talking about Israel and Judah, we're talking about the world. Look, look a little later in Isaiah, Isaiah 11. You probably could have gotten this one as well without my telling you. Isaiah 11. We'll skip the, the Messiah stuff and go, go to the end of that prophecy in verse 9. They will not hurt or destroy in all, my, in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. That's verse 1, son of David, root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. And his resting place will be glorious. The nations are going to come. The, the vision of God here in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11, we're going to see it a lot in the Old Testament. The vision of God is that uh, people will come to know him outside of simply Judah and Israel. He wants Judah and Israel to know him, but he wants people to know him outside of Judah and Israel as well. He wants, in fact, the knowledge of the Lord to spread across the earth. As much as the waters cover the sea, he wants the knowledge of the Lord to spread that far. We'll come back to Isaiah, but there are other passages. Uh, Psalm 67 at the beginning. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. The psalmist is interested in all nations coming to know God. It's not simply, for the psalmist, it's not simply about Israel being elected and Israel being the special chosen people of God, but it is about that relationship being duplicated. The knowledge of God filling the earth. Uh, let, me, let me run through some more passages. I'm going to go to Zechariah chapter 2. Verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Many nations. We'll do this. I'm going to flip over to chapter 8 of Zechariah, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, 
The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and many nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Back to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 56. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. You know, don't let the foreigner who comes in think that he's some lesser citizen or that God's not going to accept the foreigner. Don't let the foreigner say that. All right? Also, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Right? We're not going to let eunuchs think that God doesn't care about them either. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants... Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others... I will gather to them, to those already gathered. You see, the vision of God is that many nations will come. He, the, the prophecy is, the prediction is, at some point in the future, that happened right now, I mean, Isaiah 56 is a prophecy of something that will happen. God says, this will happen at some point. Many nations will be joined. I'm going to be worshipped by more than just Judah and Israel. It's going to be beyond that. Gentiles will come. If we want to use you know, our, that, that term, Gentiles will come. Nations will be joined. Isaiah 66, at the very end of Isaiah. This is just about the last words that uh, we have in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, Yavan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests 
and for Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. The vision is all nations will come. Sometimes it, it, this, this vision, what I'm trying to illustrate is it's in the Old Testament, maybe more than what we realize, that, that God is not just concerned with Israel and Judah, but his concern goes beyond that. It's certainly in Isaiah a lot. It's sometimes places that we might not expect. Like there, We know that a lot of the prophetic books have this section called the prophecies against the nations. That, in fact, even shows that God is concerned with the nations. The fact that he's willing to call them out for their sins. The fact that he is willing to say, I expect more of them than what they are giving to me right now. That shows that he's concerned with them. But even in some of those prophecies against the nations, which we're probably accustomed to thinking he's just condemning them for their sins. You know, Ethiopia and Egypt and Babylon and Syria. It's just condemnation after condemnation. And usually it is that. You know, read Isaiah 14, uh, 13 and 14 about Babylon. I mean, there's not a whole lot of positive about Babylon in those chapters. Look at, look at Isaiah 19. I mean, if you were going to pick the country that sort of gets under God's skin, all right, maybe, maybe number one is Babylon, but, but after that, probably Egypt. You know, Egypt just in a... He's, he doesn't like Egypt, right? And, and Israel, don't ever go back there. Um, Egypt is not uh, one of God's favorite nations. It looks like in the Old Testament. Look at what God said. Chapter 19 of Isaiah is the prophecy against Egypt. It's the oracle against Egypt. And this oracle is against nations. That, that in Isaiah, this section is 13 to 23. Chapters 13 to 23 is the, the prophecies against the nations in Isaiah. And chapter 19 is the Egypt prophecy, and in the first half of it is, Egypt is bad, I'm going to do bad things to Egypt. That's what we think that the prophecies against the nations are supposed to be. But then you get to verse 16. In that day, you know, he, he keeps having these this phrase, in that day. He's going to predict that after punishment, you know, for Israel, all throughout the Bible, after punishment comes salvation, right? And God predicts it. I'm going to punish you, but then salvation is going to come after. For Egypt, he says, after punishment, it's going to be salvation after that. In that day, the Egyptians, well, they're going to tremble in verse 16. Look in verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. What language is he? What language are they speaking in Canaan at this time? It's yeah, Hebrew. They're speaking Hebrew in during Isaiah's day. It says they're going to speak the language of Canaan, and they're going to swear allegiance to the Lord of Hosts, to Yahweh, yeah. Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh of Armies, Yahweh of Hosts. One will be called the City of Destruction. Well, that's interesting. Verse 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, 
all capital letters, right? All, to Yahweh. There's going to be an altar in Egypt to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors and he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them. Thus says Yahweh, Thus Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. Then Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to Yahweh, and he will respond to them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh Tzvaot, Lord of hosts, has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I don't know about you, but that's a little surprising to me that we get that prophecy right here in the midst of Isaiah 19, this prophecy against Egypt, that God is promising salvation after destruction. He's not just concerned with destroying Egypt because Egypt is a wicked nation and he's had enough of them and is going to judge, judge, judge. He's actually concerned with that nation and he wants to bring salvation. He, he wants to do what he says he wants to do in Isaiah 11 verse 9. He wants the knowledge of the Lord to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so in, in several, it's not, it's not as prominent in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, but it's there, maybe more than we've realized in the Old Testament, that God is concerned not just with Israel, but with all the nations. It, it's more than that. Just uh, turn to Tobit. Tobit 13. Who, who's got it? No? Okay. All right. Fine. I don't have it either. I've got to have it written down. Tobit 13. What I want to illustrate is that Jews actually did pick up on this. They did recognize that we are not the only ones God cares about. That God is concerned with all nations. And so Tobit 13.11, many nations, this is sort of a looking into the future, a vision of what it will be like. Many nations will come from afar to the name of the Lord God, bearing gifts in their hands, gifts for the king of heaven, generations of generations, will give you joyful praise. That's Tobit 13.11. Listen to Tobit 14, verses 6 and 7. He says, All the Gentiles will turn to fear the Lord God in truth and will bury their idols. All the Gentiles will praise the Lord. Right? So the author of Tobit, whoever that was, he recognized this is God's plan. This is what God wants. Philo, you know, Philo, first century Jewish author, first century this way and that way, you know, let's say uh, 20 BC to 50 AD, something like that. He lived, wrote in Greek, wrote all kinds of stuff. Um, and he says in, uh, if you want the reference, this is his Life of Moses, book one, uh, paragraph 149. He says that Israel was chosen because God wanted to consecrate it to the priesthood that it might forever offer up prayers for the whole universal race of mankind. You hear that? Philo thinks 
Israel was elected by God for the purpose of serving as priests for the world so that Israel could pray for the Gentiles for the sake of averting evil from them and procuring from them a participation in blessings. Philo has read his Bible and he knows that God is concerned with the whole world and he wants to bless not only Israel but the whole world. Philo thinks that the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, was translated into Greek within the providence of God. He thinks this is God has provided this for the sake of the nations, right? For the sake of the nations. Because people are going to read the law now. And they're going to love it when they read it. And blessing will come to them because of that. He says, this is the same, same work, Life of Moses, uh, book 2, paragraph 44. He says that it, if, it, if it would come about, he says right now, you look at the Jewish nation and we're sort of, we're sort of crushed, we're downtrodden, we're under the thumb of Rome in Palestine, or Philo, you know, I'm in Egypt, uh, Philo's in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and we, we don't have a king, you know, we serve the, the Romans as well down here. We're, we're at a low ebb in our national history. But if it could come about that God would raise us up and we would be a little more respectable, this is what Philo thinks would happen in that case. I think in that case, every nation, abandoning all their own customs and utterly disregarding their national laws, would change and come over to the honor of such a people only for their laws shining in connection with and simultaneously with the prosperity of the nation. Their laws, he says, will obscure all others. Just as the rising sun obscures the stars. You know, if, they would re if we would be a little more respectable, God would raise us up to a bit more respectable position, and then they read our laws, they're going to see our laws are a whole lot better than theirs. And what they're going to do is they're going to end up worshiping our God. Because they're going to recognize our religion is the right religion. Is Bible right? I had a, I, you know, Andrew said I went to Hebrew Union. I had a Jewish teacher. I had all Jewish teachers at Hebrew Union. I had a Jew, one of my Jewish teachers taught Philo. And we read this passage, and my Jewish teacher said, you know, Philo got this one right. Because when Christians came on, everybody read Philo's Bible and believed in Philo's God. Now, it was Christianity that made it happen. It wasn't Judaism that made it happen, but Philo got this one right. And so Philo recognizes, as Tobit recognized, as Isaiah recognized, as the psalmist recognized, as Zechariah recognized, God is concerned with the whole world. And you can see it there in Philo that what Philo thinks is supposed to happen this, this uh, concern that God has for the whole world is tied to the laws, and it's tied to Israel. And he thinks, you know, remember, Israel was elected to serve as a priesthood for all the nations. And God gave Israel laws which are a whole lot better than anybody else's laws. And so that if people would now read our laws, which they can now do because they're in Greek, they'll realize that. And so Philo thinks that Israel was elected for a purpose, 
And the purpose is to keep the laws of God and represent God in the world and serve as a priesthood for the world so that the mission that God has of his the knowledge of the Lord spreading the earth as the waters cover the sea, that can come through through Israel. That's how Philo thinks it's supposed to work. Well, uh, Philo's maybe not the only one. Um, Romans 3, 2. Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit is circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, we never, we never get to the second. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I'm just going to echo N.T. Wright here. N.T. Wright, uh, and I mentioned his name, and half of you probably uh, are, have written him off, and maybe the other half think that he's wonderful. And Well, maybe half of you don't even haven't read his stuff. I don't know. I don't know how his name comes across. I think a lot of what he says is very valuable. So I'll, I'll uh, put that there. And I'm just going to echo his argument about this verse, which I think makes a whole lot of sense. He says the word is in trust. Uh, right? They were entrusted. Epistuthon. They were entrusted. He says everybody knows how to translate it, but nobody has figured out what it means. I mean, because they haven't thought about it. It hasn't dawned on them what that word signifies. They were entrusted. What do you do when you entrust something to somebody? You're, you're not giving it to them for their own personal benefit, right? When you entrust something to them, you're giving them something for the benefit of somebody else. And Paul is saying that's what Israel was. He, what, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. For what purpose? I'm not going to go through the whole argument, but there is a case to be made from chapters 2 and 3 of Romans. They are, because of this whole thing that we've been talking about, they are entrusted with the oracles of God for the benefit of the nations. They haven't been, what then? If some, were not, if some did not believe, if some were not faithful in their trust, right? if some were not faithful, they were entrusted with something, but they were not faithful to it. Did their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, no. Right? And so Paul is saying Israel had a trust. They didn't keep the trust. They were unfaithful. They didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. What they were supposed to be doing is keeping the law of God and shining as a beacon in this world so that, other, so that the mission of God could be performed, so that they could be a priesthood for the nations. And they didn't do it, but that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God just because they were unfaithful and God gets it done. And so the, the view that Philo has, the view that Tobit, and on down the line, it seems to me that it's also reflected in that particular word in Romans 3, 2, entrust. It's just not that they were given the oracles of God, but they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so that, that reflects... Um, a view that we have a bit in the Old Testament. We've already 
uh, sort of introduced it, that Israel is elected for a purpose. I don't want to discount the fact that Israel is elected because God loved Israel. Right? That's what God says. Right? Uh, I love uh, Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 and following, or Deuteronomy 9. It's not because you're so great. It's not because you're so big. It's not because you're so righteous. It's certainly not that. Because I love you. That's why I chose you, because I love you. I don't want to discount that. And there's sermons to be preached there as well. But I don't want to discount either that Israel is elected for a purpose. So uh, we'll get to Exodus in just a second, but Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, servant of the Lord passage. This is, you know, if you, if you think about those, like, the major servant passages in Isaiah 40 to 55, this is the first of them where a description of the servant comes in, the servant of the Lord, in uh, verses 1 through, well, whatever, verse 7, wherever it's supposed to end. There's debate about that. But look at verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Uh, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners in the dungeon. Um, a light to the nations, it says. Um, so who is the servant? should say, who does Isaiah say the servant is? Well, he says, the, you know, chapter 41, verse 8, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. He's talking to Israel, right? Israel is the God. Isaiah, God says Israel is the servant. He says it several times in here. Now, this isn't all positive about Israel being the servant. There's, you know, there, after the, the part about the light to the nation, the servant is a light to the nations, which if, if we're just reading in context, it looks like Israel is supposed to be that light to the nations. That's what it looks like. Israel is the servant. God says Israel is the servant. The servant is the light to the nations. It looks like Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah 42, verse 18, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Well, that, that sort of sounds like Israel. And especially in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah has told, uh, God has told Isaiah, Go and preach, hearing you shall not hear, and seeing you shall not see. Make the uh, heart of the people dull, right? This is Isaiah 6, uh, 9, 10, 11. And so, who is, who is so blind but my servant? Israel. So deaf is my messenger of my sin. Who is blind as he that is at peace with me? So blind is the servant of the Lord. Um, it, it looks like to me, Israel is appointed by God as his servant. Be a light to the nations, according to Isaiah 42, verse 6. Isaiah 42, verses 18 and 20, they're not very good at that job. They have been entrusted with something that they haven't lived up to. They were not faithful, in the words of uh, Paul in Romans 3.3. 3. They were entrusted with something, Romans 3.2, but they weren't faithful to it, Romans 3.3. 3. 
And he, he says again in Isaiah 49, verse 6, about the servant, light to the nations. Now, I, I do think that as we move through Isaiah in these servant passages in Isaiah, um, I, from my reading of those passages, it does go from sort of a national servant figure, and it narrows down to an individual servant figure. And I think Isaiah 49 is actually the, the turning point there. You, actually, I think Isaiah 49, verse 6, is perhaps the turning point. Notice that he says, uh, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Notice that the servant now seems to be differentiated from Israel. The servant is not Israel. He's going to restore Israel. It seems to be an individual now. I think we've all gotten our heads who that individual might be. And this servant is supposed to restore Jacob and Israel and then also be the light to the nations, which was what God had appointed Israel to be. And so God is concerned with the nations, and he appoints Israel for a purpose. Because he's concerned with the nations, he appoints Israel to be that light to the nations, the priesthood. And that, that takes us to, well, before we get there, let's, let's do Genesis 12, and then we'll go to Exodus 19, right? So Genesis 12, uh, the call of Abraham. If you've read anywhere in these areas, you know that there's, there's debate on every single passage that I'm talking about. But point to a passage of scripture where there's not debate. Uh, so I'm giving you my take on all of these things. Um, but you can read books where they would disagree with everything I said. I think they're wrong. So uh, there you go. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge that there are more, there's more than one way to read these verses. But uh, I think this is a way that makes sense, especially from a Christian perspective. It makes sense. Uh, so Genesis chapter 12 Verse 3 is the, you know, the, the crux here uh, that is repeated, this promise is repeated a number of times in Genesis. Here it says um, to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if, if you read Genesis 1 through 11, you'll notice that sin sort of uh, what would we say? Sin covers the earth as the waters cover the sea in Genesis 1 through 11. And with, as sin travels over the earth, so does the curse that accompanies sin. And that, that word curse appears several times in Genesis 1 through 11. It keeps coming up, this curse that, that uh, arises when sin spreads. And then here in Genesis 12, we get blessings. And it looks like, I mean, definitely Abraham is the solution to some sort of a problem. Uh, in in the, the context of Genesis, Abraham is being called as the solution to something. And it looks like what he's being called as the solution to is the spread of sin and the spread of curse. And the way he's going to be the solution to that is that he's going to spread blessing instead. Because it's in him and in his descendants and in his seed, as we'll read in Galatians 3, that all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed through Abraham and through Abraham's 
descendants. You know that that promise comes up. It's repeated to Abraham a few times. We'll look at the one in Genesis 18 in just a minute. But Genesis 22, verse 18, after the sacrifice of, of near sacrifice of Isaac, God repeats that promise. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. He repeats it to uh, Isaac in uh, Genesis 26, uh, verse 4. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. He repeats it to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 14. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Blessing will come through you. This is the, fam this is the way that curse is going to be um, cut off and blessing will come instead. And so the family of Abraham is going to produce blessing. Then we get the call of Israel out of Egypt. And Exodus 19, the passage that uh, I'm going to sign. Uh, um, Andrew, what's, what's the, where am I aiming for? Hey, we've got all the time in the world. That's what so, I was thinking. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's what I was, yeah, that's what I was planning on. Uh, Exodus 19, uh, verses 5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, Philo is thinking this exact passage, right? Philo says Israel was elected to be priests for the world so that they could pray for the world so that blessing would come to the whole world. He's got this passage in mind. Uh, Terence Fritheim says that we should translate this, uh, we should sort of put five and six together and translate it a little bit differently. He suggests we translate it, for all the earth is mine, and so you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, right? Because I've got to think about not just you, but I've got to think about the whole world here. And so you are elected because all the earth is mine. You're going to be my priests for the world. Now, I mean, we know the types of things priests do. And, and again, you could read this passage in a number of different ways. Here's a suggestion for how we read it is that. We know the types of things priests are supposed to do, and priests are supposed to represent God to men, and men to God. And they're supposed to be sort of a, a bit of an intermediary, and God is appointing Israel for that task. You are my intermediaries here. You are my elected nation to be the holy nation in the midst of this crooked and perverted world. And you're going to be my priest. You're going to represent me in this world. And the way you're going to do it is you're going to listen to my voice. You know, you're going to, you're going to be a holy nation here in this world, you're going to listen to me, you're going to do my laws, and that is the way that you're going to be my priest in this world. Because there's going to come a day when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the chief of the mountains, and all the nations will stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord, saying, let us go up and worship Yahweh. That's what's going to happen. That's the vision for the future, that, that the glory, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you are my appointed priests, to get that done, to help in that effort. At any rate, we know 1 Peter 2.9 is quoted in, on behalf of the church, holy nation, royal priesthood, right? And so in some ways we have that same, that same task. 
And so Israel was to be a priesthood to represent God to the world. And they would do so if they kept the commandments of God. All right? And that's, we know the story well enough to know that's sort of where the problems came in, keeping the commandments of God that didn't always work out. But priesthood was supposed to be holy. You think about Israel, supposed to be holy, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, verse 2, you should be holy for I am holy, and all those laws that are given in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are for the purpose of making Israel holy, making them a distinct people, making them different, making them recognizably distinct from the nations around them. Be holy to God, set apart for God. Not so that they wouldn't have any interaction with the nations, but so that they would have the right sort of interaction with the nations around about them. One of those promises to Abraham is, is Genesis 18. And notice, notice what we read there. Genesis 18 you know, this is where the three guys come to, the next chapter is Sodom and Gomorrah, here are the three guys come to Abraham and have a meal, and one of them ends up being Yahweh, two of them are angels, and they go to Sodom. And so it says in verse 17, you know, Yahweh said, uh, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. You notice the way it's going to happen is that Abraham is going to keep my commandments. That's how it's going to happen. Because he's going to command his children to do what I say and on down the line. And that's how all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, because they're going to do what I say. And so the kingdom of priests is tied to the commandments. You've got to keep the commandments if you're going to be the kingdom priest that God has called you to be. In you know in in uh, Exodus nineteen six they're they're the, the priesthood representative for the nations of the world. We've already seen in Exodus this theme that God is concerned that His glory be magnified in all the earth. You know that part of the battle with Pharaoh is that entire theme about God making Himself known. In Exodus chapter five. Verse 2, this is when Moses first approaches Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, you know, Moses says, Yahweh would like you to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, well, I don't know who Yahweh is. Uh, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. You know, who's Yahweh? Well, Yahweh says, I'm going to show him. Pharaoh who I am. I'm going to introduce myself to Pharaoh. And that's part of the ten plagues is Yahweh saying, this is who I am. Uh, if you want a powerful God, that's me. If you want somebody who can do all things, who can uh, you know, mess with your foolish, silly little gods, that's me. 
uh, Yahweh's introducing himself, and, and so he says, like in chapter 7, verse 5, you know, when I do this, when I stretch out my hand and do this plague, chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on, on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst, that, that's going to show them who I am. Well, he says in chapter 9, verse 16, Chapter 9, verse 16, Indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, Pharaoh, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So, so at least part of what he's interested, what Yahweh is, in, what God is interested in is proclaiming his name through all the earth. Right? And so Israel later on, kingdom of priests, representatives in this world, if they keep the commandments, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, God sort of lays out explicitly what he intends for this to result in. A bunch of laws in Deuteronomy, right? Before we really get any of them, we get this verse. Verse 6, so keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. All right, for what, na what great nation is there that has a God so near as it is to the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? You know, what, what's going to happen is you're going to go into Canaan, and if you keep my commandments, keep them, do them, my commandments, do the stuff I'm telling you, because what's <coughs> going to happen is people are going to hear about it. You live this way, it's not going to be a secret. People are going to want to understand what's going on in Canaan. And there will come a time. When the mountain of the house of the Lord is raised up as the chief of the mountains, and the law of the Lord will go out from Zion, and people will come streaming into it. My concern is for the whole world. I want the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and you are my priesthood. And what you've got to do, you've got to keep my commandments, and by that, represent me through the world. There's not a whole lot of contrast with some passages we see in the New Testament. Not a whole lot of contrast there, right? You think about Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People are going to notice when you do the things you ought to be doing, when you live the life you ought to be living, when you keep my commandments, people are going to notice that. They're going to be curious and they're going to come and they're going to say, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord and let us worship. You think about 1 Peter 3, you know, that husband and wife passage and, and how is the wife to win over her husband? How is she supposed to, without a word, Peter says, you know, just by the influence of her <coughs> wife, she will do it. Well, there's not a whole lot of dissimilarity from that idea to what I'm suggesting in the Old Testament that part of Israel's purpose is to be God's instrument, God's priesthood for the world, to be that light to the nations. They didn't live up to it, but if they were unfaithful, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God just because they didn't live up, live up to the trust 
that God had set in them. So they were a kingdom of priests given the commandments of God to be his representatives in this world. If they would keep the commandments and God would be glorified and his knowledge would fill the word. Thank you for your attention. I hope that was helpful for you. Do you have anything you'd like to ask or share? It was not only helpful to uh, connect with whatever it was doing with us before, but not only God, you know, reflecting again. Lifestyle, yeah. Yeah, excellent point, uh, Cecil. Yeah. Yeah, thinking about how to how to live up to God's honor in Exodus 33 and 34, 7 to 8. some ways maybe you would suggest as as we preach through and and try to bring this connection out about uh, the concern God's always had for the nations and how that's reflected in the Old Testament. Is there anything that comes to mind as like something you you think, man, if, if I could if I could share something with a preacher about this subject, it would be this. You know, what are some things we can do with that? Yeah, well, it, in a way, in my mind, um, if there has been a de-emphasis in Churches of Christ on the Old Testament, this in a way sort of redeems it for usefulness. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of ways the Old Testament is useful, but that's one of the ways that it continues to be useful to us. I mean, it, it teaches us about God, and that alone ought to be useful enough for actually actually preach it. Um, but this is, you know, it, it shows... The uh, concern that God has had for all nations, I think, it, I think it sort of connects the Testaments in a way. We have, at least I have run across the view, that in the Old Testament God was concerned with Israel, and in the New Testament he's concerned with everybody. Well, you know, that first of all, that's not true, and second of all, it doesn't particularly make sense. You sort of wonder, well, why did he change? I wonder why he's now concerned with everybody if he wasn't concerned with everybody in the Old Testament, well, you know, you see that actually he was, you know, actually he was concerned with everybody, and he didn't reveal himself in the same way to all nations, he didn't make the same sort of covenant relationship with all nations, but he did have a concern with everybody, and I think in that way it sort of connects the Bible. What I would say for, you know, for, uh, for preaching is just, you know, pick out some of these passages and go for it. You know, I, I think in some ways congregations will be a little surprised that, oh, that's there. That's interesting. I didn't realize that concern was all the way back. I thought this was something new that Jesus thought of, that we ought to be concerned with Gentiles as well. Well, you know, actually, Isaiah was concerned with Gentiles. He, he says it a lot. Uh, God has always been concerned with everybody, and this isn't something new that uh, Jesus brought. Jesus brought some things new, but that wasn't a particularly new thing that he brought.